I'm Sandra O'Connor. It took, it took, no, wait a minute. It took 191 years to get the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. I was there 12 years before we got the second, and it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was appointed in 1993 uh, to fill the seat that was vacated by Justice Byron White of Colorado, and President Clinton appointed her and exercised very good judgment in doing that, I have to say. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg grew up, much as I did, in an era when uh, women had trouble getting employment and weren't expected to hold any kind of a significant job. Uh, we both had trouble getting our first jobs as lawyers. We both married men we met in law school who were fabulous and who were very happy to see their wives uh, compete in the legal profession. And Justice Ginsburg has been a model member of the court, um, deciding cases uh, with her inimitable flair for legal decision-making and her excellent writing skills, she's been a great member. And I know that she is looking forward to now getting another woman on the court to serve with her. So, she will be... Justice Ginsburg will carry on a conversation with Jeffrey Rosen here, who's made himself very familiar with everything the court does, so I'm turning the stage over to them. Thank you, Justice O'Connor, for that wonderful introduction, for your service to the country, and thank you, Justice Ginsburg. Thank you for being in Aspen. You, you, you. It has been simply grand, and I want to thank everyone who has stayed this long. I mean, it was an afternoon of a lot of talk, so it's, it's good to be with you. Uh, you're very strong to be here. You've just lost your beloved Marty, our dear friend, and I want to express condolences on behalf of everyone here. I met you both first about 20 years ago, and I don't know if you know what an inspiration he was to me and everyone who knew him as a model of the perfect husband in a truly equal partnership. You know, he had daunting skills. First of all, he could cook like a dream. He would make these incredible desserts and, and dinners. He shared in child rearing at a time when that was not fashionable. He was incredibly funny and, and made you laugh out loud whenever you were with him. And most important, both of you were so crazy about each other. It was so visibly in love that just being near you was always a joy. Uh, you said you wouldn't mind saying a few words, but people want to know the secret to this remarkably happy marriage. Why don't you share some of your secrets? Marty and I lived happily together for 56 years. <laughs> uh, 
and as far as the division of labor in, in our household, the mother of my grandson, my grandson is here with me, was asked by a reporter soon after my nomination, well, tell me, what is life like in your, in your house? And she said, well, my father does the cooking and my mother does the thinking. <laughs> not, not true at all, because Marty is the smartest man I knew. And about a happy marriage. Well, I had a remarkable mother-in-law, Marty's mother. And Marty attributes his skill in the kitchen to two women. One was his mother, and the second, his wife. But anyway, Marty's mother on our wedding day, we were married in her home, said, dear, I'd like to tell you the secret of a happy marriage. It helps sometimes to be a little deaf. And I can tell you that that advice has stood me in such good stead, <laughs> not only with Marty, but with my current colleagues on the court. <laughs> you know, Sandra talked about the age when we were growing up, and it was, Marty was most, unusual in this way. He was the first boy I ever met who cared that I had a brain. And he, he always thought that I was better than I thought I really was. I mean, this was a man, incidentally, he was, he was in the army for two years, so he left law school after his first year. By the time, two years later, when we went back to school, Marty to the second year, Mike to the first year, uh, Paul's mother was born. So I started law school when Jane was 14 months. And the dean of the law school then, Dean Griswold, many of you know him, he was a great law school dean and then a great solicitor general. But he, when he would introduce me or in social conversation, he would explain that I had met Marty in law school and that Marty was a year ahead of me, so I transferred to Columbia for my third year. I finally said one day, Dean Griswold, it's embarrassing to me because Jane was four years old when I graduated from from law school, so. But it, it, the notion of Harvard Law School, at motherhood, well, in my entering class at Harvard, there were nine women, over 500 men. A big jump from Marty's class was five women and over 500 men. The notion that you could go through that rigorous training in law school and have an infant was the two just didn't mix in the dean's mind. 
you once told me when I was interviewing you, you pointed to a picture of one of your law clerks, a, a man holding yes. one of his kids. And you said, that's my hope for the future. And first I thought it was sort of a platitude. I didn't know what you were saying, but I realized you were saying your hope for the future was that men assume re equal responsibility with women for child rearing, then women will be truly equal. Yes. How, well, uh, the, the, the first picture of my hope for the world is of my grandson, Paul, at age two months. He is lying on the bed with his father. My daughter took the photograph. The love of that father for that infant is communicated so beautifully in that photograph, which is in a prime place in my chambers. The, the story of David Post was he had been a night student at Georgetown University Law Center, and he was going to school at night because his wife, an economist, had a good job, I think, at the World Bank. And so he took primary responsibility for their two young children. At that, and David Post, as his writing sample, he wrote the story of contract as revealed in Wagner's ring cycle. So the combination of the two, his love of opera and his being the primary caretaker of his two children, um, he was on top of that a wonderful, wonderful law clerk. How, how optimistic are you about that vision of men and women sharing child responsibilities? Uh, we have this wonderful um, article, in, it's the cover of The Atlantic by Hannah Rosen, it's called The End of Men. And uh, Hannah Rosen has a very provocative thesis in this piece. She says the attributes most valuable today, social intelligence, open communication, the ability to focus, are not predominantly male. She notes, last year, Iceland elected a prime minister, the first openly lesbian head of state, who campaigned against the male elite she claimed to destroy the nation's banking system and who vowed to end the age of testosterone. You are the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement. You managed to convince the court to accept gender equality step by step. Are you as optimistic as, uh, as, as Hannah Rosen that really women are outstripping men and that men are gonna step up to the plate and take responsibility for children? I think that men and women, shoulder to shoulder, will work together to make this a better world. I don't think that, just as I don't think that men are the superior sex, and neither do I think women are. I think that, uh, it's great that we're beginning to use the talent of all of the people in, in all walks of life and that we no longer have the closed doors uh, that we, we once had. And are you satisfied with women's achievements? I mean, there are conflicting statistics in this article. On the one hand, women are 60% of all college graduates, 60% of all master's degrees. On the other hand, only 3% of Fortune 500 CEOs. Do, do we have further to go? Of course we have further to go. But progress, there is progress. Progress comes slowly, and one must be patient. I remember the first time I heard about uh, uh, Swedish 
parental leave system. They had it long before we did. And someone was commenting on it and said that, but only 10% of the fathers take that leave. And I said, well, 10% better than 2%. It is frankly more than I thought it would be in the beginning. And that's, I think, how it is shaping up today, that more and more men are sharing the joys as well as the burdens of bringing up the next generation. But it takes time. Um, the best way that I found to reach men of a certain age in the days when I was a flaming feminist was to have them think about their daughters and what the, they would like the world to be like for their daughters. And, and norms are changing. Uh, yeah. Hannah Rosen reports that the mommy track is giving way to a demand for flex time among both men and women who are graduating from college. That's a prized employment perk to be able to have a flexible schedule, and both men and women want it. And you would think that today it should be ever so much easier in the electronic age when you have, for example, the entire law library at your fingertips at home. All right, Justice Ginsburg, uh, three women on the court. Justice O'Connor was the first, then there were two, then there was one again, now two, and finally three. How do you feel? Should there be more? There will be, and I'm so glad that Elena is joining us because I had said, I expect in my lifetime to see three, four, maybe more women on the US Supreme Court. We are a little bit behind Canada. Canada has nine justices. Four of those are women, including their chief justice. But we'll, we, will, we will get there. You've known Elena Kagan for a while, I think. How did you meet her? I met her first when she was clerking for Ab Mikva. And then I next got to know Elena, or she got to know me, when I was nominated by President Clinton. And then Joe Biden was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He wanted to appear very well prepared for the hearing. So he borrowed Elena, who was then working in, at the White House, and he asked her to read every opinion ever, I ever wrote, every speech I ever gave, so she could inform him and suggest questions to ask me at the hearing. So Elena uh, knew me quite well. When she became our Solicitor General, I lost my best law clerk picker because I had a, an arrangement with Elena when she was the Dean of the Harvard Law School that she would pick one of my four law, law clerks each term, and I have been exceedingly well served by the law clerks that she chose. Now, some have criticized her for not having judicial experience, and of course, it's a pretty, pretty tough crowd up there. Uh, will she be a good justice? Her very first argument, the very first court that Elena ever argued before was the U.S. Supreme Court, and she was superb. 
She was a wonderful advocate. Every, every argument that she gave, she had a little bit of a problem because she had written about my nomination and Steve Breyer's nomination and said she wished we had been a little more revealing than we were. <laughs> She's older and wiser. <laughs> she, she steered the same course that, that we did. How, how did she do? Do you, you think she steered it well? I thought she was terrific, and I wrote her a note, and I said, it takes two qualities, and that's all you need to know. One is patience, and the other is a sense of humor. I think she showed both. She, she had that wonderful joke when she was asked where she was on Christmas. She said, like, my, like most Jews, I was probably in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> And, and now, of course, the court is going to have how many New Yorkers? We have every borough represented, ex <laughs> except, except Staten Island. So Sonia is from the Bronx, I'm from Brooklyn, Nino is from Queens, and Elena born and bred in Manhattan. And Justice Alito is from New Jersey, which almost counts <laughs> as, as well. Tell us, people are curious, of course, about what the dynamics is on this remarkable body. I mean, I think from my parochial perspective of an endless faculty meeting where you're sort of locked in the room with the same nine people for a very uh, long time, how, how do you get along? You, you have a famous bipartisan friendship with Justice Scalia. You spend New Year's with him, you love opera. What's the, what are the, the, the ways that you've bonded most with, with, this, uh, with, with, with Justice Scalia? I think Sandra will back me up on this. Of all the places I've worked, all the law faculties I've been a member of, there is no workplace that I found more collegial than the US Supreme Court. We are, in a real sense, a family, no matter how Strongly, we disagree on important questions, and we do. Um, we genuinely respect, like, and care about each other. I mean, Sam will, will, will remember my first bout with cancer. I had colorectal cancer in 1999. And Sandra's advice to me was, well, she gave me uh, first advice when I had to have chemotherapy was, do it on Friday, and you'll get over it on the weekend, and you'll be able to come back to work on Monday. The other thing she told me, and I was so glad to follow her advice, she said, you're going to get letters from all over the country. People will be wishing you well. Don't even try to respond. Well, in so, so many things, uh, every, every one of my colleagues in, in my most recent bout was with pancreatic cancer a year, a year and a half ago, and I'm, I'm just fine. Uh, My, my favorite story from the first cancer bout was uh, 
my dear colleague, David Souter. Along with all my other colleagues, he said, Ruth, if there's anything, anything in the world I can do to help you get through this time, just call on me. One afternoon, one Friday afternoon, I get a call from Marty saying, when you get finished with the chemo, then please come to see me. I'm in the cardiac wing, Washington Hospital Center. It was nothing life-threatening, but he had to be there overnight. And I had tickets to the Washington National Opera the next evening. So I called David Souter and said, David, you said anything, anything at all. I don't want to sit next to an empty seat tomorrow night. Will you join me? Now, this audience won't appreciate what a tremendous speak that was to get David to come to the Kennedy Center. He had been invited dozens and dozens of times. He enjoyed it enormously, but he never came back a second time. This idea of consensus is much discussed recently. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts came to office saying that he wanted there to be more consensus, fewer five to four decisions. But he's had mixed success. In, in 2007, the rate went up to 33% of five to four decisions. This term, it was a bit better. It was only 15% of the cases were five to four. But there's some very strong rhetoric that's going up there, especially this year with the Citizens United decision. Will Chief Justice Roberts achieve consensus, and is consensus a good thing? I don't think he meant by that that he or any, any one of us would surrender a deeply held view. You know, the court is not like a legislature. Um, we don't vote a particular way because uh, we would like that outcome. We have to account for everything we do by giving reasons for it. So there's no horse trading at all on the court. What there can be is instead of deciding the great big issue, we can agree uh, on a lower ground, on a procedural issue perhaps. I mean, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was a grandmaster at that, getting the court to come together on a ground on which we could agree and defer the bigger battle for, for another day. She was a master, and you also are famous for your incremental, narrow, and restrained decisions. And yet, many of the decisions in recent terms have not been narrow. The Citizens United case could have been decided on very narrow grounds, but instead it was quite broad. Do, do you think the Chief Justice is really committed to narrow opinions? I can't answer that question. I mean, they, they thought that this was a very basic First Amendment issue, and it needed to be decided sooner rather than later. You're quite right that it could have been decided uh, on, a, on a lesser ground. Uh, we started out the term with that 5-4 decision. And I think that both sides, if you read our opinions, you will find that both sides are very well stated. 
there's a lot of hope of uh, building consensus and appealing to Justice Kennedy, who of course is at the center of many of these decisions. Uh, people hope that Elena Kagan will be able to do that. Can one appeal to him? Uh, can, can, can he be uh, persuaded? Or do, do people sort of know their mind up in advance and are not likely to change it? Every once in a while, and it is a rare while, someone will, we, we, I should explain that when the court is sitting, we'll sit two weeks in a row, we'll meet on Wednesday afternoon to talk about Monday's cases, and on Friday afternoon to talk about Tuesday and Wednesday's cases. The chief will go down the list well, he will start by summarizing the case and then expressing his tentative vote. And then when all of us have, have had our say, uh, the Chief Justice will give us our homework, that is, he will assign people to write um, the opinions from the sitting. When he's not in the majority, the most senior justice in the majority has that that job. So now what? what? So the, the, the question is, can you actually change yes, Justice Kennedy's yeah, mind? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's not Justice <laughs> that's Kennedy. Or maybe twice a term, the opinion will come out not as the conference voted initially, but on the other side. To give you an illustration of how it really ain't over until it's over, I remember a case where the conference vote was seven to two. I was one of the two, and I was assigned to write the dissent. In the fullness of time, the decision became six to three. But my two became six. So we are constantly trying to persuade each other. We do it mainly through our writing. And it will happen that a justice who was on one side will read the dissenting opinion and say, I think, I think he or she has it right, and I'm going to join that side. Now, sometimes the rhetoric can be quite strong, and you're telling us that it's really not personal. I was especially moved, as many people were, by your passionate dissent in the Carhartt case, the partial birth abortion case. You objected to the gender stereotypes that were inherent in the idea that women had to be protected from their bad uh, decisions. Uh, was it difficult to, to challenge a colleague that directly? You seemed to really care about that case, and it seemed to go yes, against much of I, your legacy. I did not say about the other side, this opinion is profoundly misguided, or this opinion is not to be taken seriously. Those are Justice Scalia's words. Yes. He said that, yes. he, he said that about one of Justice O'Connor's opinions, yes, and she very calmly said, sticks and stones will break my bones, which was no, an excellent. No, no. Retort. I think that I never saw that kind of invective in any Sandra Day O'Connor opinion, and, and I think that those are distracting asides, so I don't use them. Um, will Roe v. Wade survive? Mm -hmm. Will Roe v. Wade survive? 
Roe v. Wade was decided in, what, 1973. Over a generation of young women have grown up understanding that they can control their own reproductive capacity and in, in fact their life's destiny. We will never go back to the way it once was. People It, Roe v. Wade and its time was not all that controversial. It was a seven to two, seven to two decision, only two dissenters. Um, there won't be any real change for anyone in this audience or any daughters of anyone in this audience. The only people who are truly affected are poor women because even at the time of Roe v. Wade, there were four states of the United States where a woman who wanted an abortion, at least in the first trimester, could have access to a safe legal abortion. And, that, and now it would be a lot more than four states. So any woman who has the means to travel from one state to another, you don't have to go to Japan or Cuba, will have access to a safe abortion. So it's the poor people, whatever the, whatever the state legislation may be, whatever the court may do, it is only the poor, poor women who will suffer. And I think that if people realize that, maybe they will have a different attitude. There were two themes that are much in the pol political debate recently, and one is that this is a pro-business court. This is what the progressives are all saying, and they cite that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has won 81% of its 16 cases. Now, I'm delighted to report you are among the least consistently pro-business justices, according to the surveys, voting for the Chamber's position uh, less than anyone else, only 35% of the time. Is this a fair charge, and is this a pro-business court? I thought you were going to ask me about um, how did I let Jeffrey Skilling off the hook in the Enron case. No, that was certainly one where the, the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce took the position that all nine of us took, that Congress had written a statute um, that made it a crime to deprive another of honest services. Well, that term, honest services, was so vague that uh, all nine of us agreed you couldn't make that a criminal offense. So uh, I don't regard myself as pro-business, as anti-business. I just call them as they come and as best as I can. And there's another uh, trope, and that's the old debate about activism and restraint. And here's another statistic I'm delighted to share with you. 
uh, you are the most restrained justice, yeah. Justice Ginsburg, if restraint is defined in the traditional way of simply striking down state and federal laws. So between 1994 and 2001, you were the justice least likely to strike down federal, state, or local laws. Isn't it an odd world where suddenly restraint has been redefined and you're an activist if you don't strike down mm -hmm. health care or economic reform or campaign finance reform? Yes, we could, we could see that even though some of the senators were begging for the court to relieve them of their own folly. So, but the label activist, what, what does it mean? It means whose ox is being bored, you know, on that kind of score, who has voted to strike down more state, federal legislation, well, Justice Scalia is high up on the list of activist judges, if that's how you measure it. He was number two, second most activist, as you said. So this is the same debate that we're engaging in right now that was going on in the progressive era when the liberals were saying this is a pro-business court and the conservatives were saying you have to strike down progressive laws and strike down the New Deal. Might we, this is obviously a serious question, what, answer it as you can, might we see a resurrection of those New Deal battles where the Supreme Court, by divided votes, is challenging the President and Congress on issues they care intensely about? I think the, um, the Lochner era is long over. E even my colleagues who might have some doubts if it were decades earlier, um, are prepared to recognize the, the proper role of the legislature in social, in social and economic legislation. So no, I don't think there will be uh, that. And I'm, I think I can say with some confidence that I don't, don't think there will be another court packing plan. Because you know, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was so annoyed at the nine old men who kept striking down state and federal economic and social legislation that he decided to, um, when he, he couldn't fire the justices because we hold our offices during good behavior, that's what the Constitution said. So his proposal was for every justice who turned 70 and a half years old, a new justice could be appointed. That would have given him immediately six appointments and the court would have swelled in size from nine to 15. I, I don't think we are in any danger of that and happening again. From the other side of the political spectrum, there are calls on the court to impose contested social reforms. You, I don't know if you understand, ladies and gentlemen, but as the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement, Justice Ginsburg chose her cases case by case. She chose to represent men rather than women because she thought that the judges of that time would be more sympathetic to them. And you slowly built a consensus for women's equality at a time when this was hotly contested in the country. Do you take from this experience that the court should be careful not to jump too far ahead, that it should maybe nudge, but generally follow rather than lead? The court, I don't know an age in which the court has really led. I mean, if we think about Brown v. Board, that was probably the most celebrated decision of the 20th century, and rightly so. But if you look at the brief filed by the United States in Brown v. Board, it was urging the court to hold 
separated separation of children in schools to, to hold that unconstitutional. And the reason was that the then Soviet Union, it was its best propaganda tool to talk about apartheid in America. So it wasn't just Thurgood Marshall's great advocacy and his careful plan working up to Brown, but it was, it was the aftermath of World War II. We had just fought a war against odious racism, and here our own troops were separated. It was the time, and it was the same thing with me. I mean, I was tremendously fortunate to be born at the right time and in the right place. Women generations before said the same thing that my generation was saying, but they did it at a time when no one, well, precious few, were prepared to listen. I like to tell the story about the so-called um, liberal Warren Court and how it dealt with issues of gender differentials. The case was a woman in, um, in Florida, and she was what we would today call a battered woman. One day, she was beside herself with rage. Her husband had just humiliated her to the breaking point. And she was a little bit like Billy Budd, you know, when he, he strikes out at Claggart because he's tongue-tied. Well, she took a baseball bat, she spied it in the corner of the room, and with all her might, brought it down on her husband's head, ending the altercation and starting the second-degree murder prosecution. In Hillwood County, Florida at the time, women were not serving on juries. They were not called to jury duty. And Gwendolyn Hoyt, who was standing trial before an all-male jury, she had the notion that women on the jury might understand her outrage, her her state of mind and maybe not vote to acquit her, but maybe vote for the lesser degree of manslaughter rather than murder. But she was convicted of murder by an all-male jury, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court on the issue of whether she had been denied the equal protection of the laws and due process of law because she didn't have the opportunity to have a single woman on her jury. The liberal Warren Court said, well, we don't really understand what Gwendolyn Hoyt is complaining about. Women have the best of all possible worlds. They're not called to jury duty, that's true, but if they go down to the clerk's office and volunteer to put their name on the roll, it will be there. So women have the best of all possible worlds, and that was that was that. That was in the year 1961. The changes came when Chief Justice Berger was 
the Chief Justice of the United States, and he was known to be a, quote, conservative justice. And yet in that decade of the 70s, every, almost every challenge of a sex-based differential succeeded in the court, whether it was state legislation, federal legislation, why? Because there was an awakened public, there was a revival of the feminist movement, there were men and women working together for this change. And I was there, able to use my legal uh, training to help advance that cause. And I did, Jeffrey, I really did have as many uh, women's cases as men's, but they, they were all making the same basic, the same basic point. And I can illustrate it best, perhaps, with Stephen Weisenfeld's case. This was a man whose wife was the dominant earner in the family. She was a math teacher in high school. Uh, she was in the classroom into her ninth month. In fact, she went from the school to the hospital. And then the doctor came out and told Stephen, you have a healthy baby boy, but your wife died in childbirth. She had an embolism. He was distraught, as you can imagine, and he vowed that he would not work full time till his child was in school full time. And his case went to the US Supreme Court. It resulted in a unanimous judgment, but for three different reasons. One group thought that the law that said, oh, I left out that Stephen applied for child in care social security benefits and he was turned down because they were labeled mother's benefits, not parents' benefits. Um, I got to the case because he wrote a letter to his local newspaper in Edison, New Jersey, and it was, I've heard enough about women's live. Let me tell you what happened to me. And he described going to the Social Security office and there being no benefits for a widower, although they were for a widow. The tagline was, tell my story to Gloria Steinem. And we went through, uh, from the lower court up to the Supreme Court, the principal argument was that this is discrimination against the woman as wage earner. She play, pays the same social security tax as a man but doesn't get for her family the same protection. Then it was discrimination against uh, the male as parent because he doesn't get the opportunity to be the personal caretaker of his child. And one of my later colleagues, he was then Justice Rehnquist, thought it was totally arbitrary from the point of view of the baby. Why should the baby have the opportunity for the care of a sole surviving parent only if the parent were female, not if the parent were male? So 
arbitrary gender distinctions hurt everyone. They hurt women, they hurt men, and they hurt children. I'm going to end uh, Justice Ginsburg by being uh, candid. This is a time when many liberals uh, for whom you are a hero are anxious about the future of the court. Uh, they fear that a conservative majority will thwart uh, progressive causes, and they look to you, uh, who, according to one study, has the most consistently liberal record, uh, voting record at the same time that you're most restrained. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the court? And will, do you think it will uh, break uh, the hearts of progressives, or will it uh, continue to uh, uh, embody the principles you care about? And I revere the court. I think all of us do. And more than anything else, we want to make sure that we leave it as healthy as we found it. So I don't think there's any one of us that would do anything that would lead the court to be not only uh, a model for our own country, but for the world, a model of the independence of the judiciary and of the obligation to reason why everything we do, you know, we must give, give reasons. So, um, Maybe hope springs eternal, but I try to be as persuasive as I can uh, with my colleagues. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not, but I will continue to, to try. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for a wonderful afternoon. If I could ask you to take your water bottles and dispose them in the recycling, that would be great. This closes our afternoon of conversation. We look forward to seeing the rest of you tomorrow morning. Thank you very much.